Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Dan Schreider. Dan is an assistant professor in the Department of Genetics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dan, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Awesome. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, So you have an undergraduate degree in computer science, but you are now an evolutionary biologist. Can you tell us about uh, that transition and how it led you to work in machine learning? Sure. Yeah. So it's actually sort of a series of transitions, and it started when um, when I was an undergrad. I was studying computer science. I got into that field because I, I liked to write code in high school. I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. And um, during, I believe, my sophomore year, I started going to seminars about uh, sort of various topics in computational research, and I heard about this thing called bioinformatics. And it turned out that you could write code to do research in biology. And I, I thought that sounded amazing. I always sort of liked the idea of being a being a scientist, though I didn't know much about biology at the time. And the night after that seminar, I immediately started looking into taking biology courses and sort of shifting focus. And uh, from that moment forward, I was training uh, to become a biological researcher as well as, uh, as uh, you know, someone with computer programming skills. Um, I was not sort of keen on the idea of being a software engineer. And um, yeah, when I heard that, oh, someone like me can, you know, be a, be a biologist, I, I thought that was really cool. So started doing that. And um, when I wrapped up my degree, I decided to stay at Indiana University and started working there with Matthew Hahn, who was my, my PhD advisor there. And um, our area of research was population genetics, which is uh, a, a subfield of evolutionary biology where you're sort of uh, looking at the evolutionary dynamics of, of gene sequences, especially in recent evolutionary history. And you do this by looking at sort of the patterns of genetic variation that are present within a population. So you go out to nature, sam- uh, sample a bunch of individuals, sequence their genomes, and see what sense you can make of, of all the variation there. Started that at the beginning of grad school, fell in love with it, and haven't really looked away since. Um, now, you might be uh, gathering that this involves a lot of data analysis, um, a lot of sequence analysis, and we're interested in population genetics with trying to tease apart the different evolutionary forces that are shaping patterns of genetic variation, things like natural selection or demographic events such as population size changes like population crashes or expansions. And all of these things sort of leave their footprints in patterns of genetic variation within species. So um, we're sort of interested in going backwards, taking these patterns of variation and making inferences about the evolutionary forces at play. And it turns out that machine learning is, is a great way to go about doing this because you have a lot of high dimensional data and we're trying to sort of, you know, churn out as much information from it as we can. Uh, very cool. One one question that just jumps out at me is you mentioned that your study or maybe evolutionary biology in general is focused on uh, recent changes in uh, genomes. What does that mean in this context? 
Yeah, sorry, context. let me clarify. Uh, population genetics, my sort of subfield within ah, evolutionary biology, it. is often um, more concerned with recent changes because the or recent evolutionary events because those are the things that shape present day patterns of of genetic variation. So, okay. Yeah. And so, how recent uh, is that in, in this context? Yeah. So it depends on the organism and. Um, you know, there's sort of theoretical expectations for uh, sort of how far back in time you can see based on present day patterns of variation. And without going into the theory, the the idea is essentially that um, if you take one, we'll start with one human individual. So humans have two copies of each chromosome, one from mom, one from dad. And um, if you compare those two copies, you'll see a bunch of differences. And that is because these two chromosomes at some point in the past were derived from the same ancestor, but enough time has passed since then that new mutations have occurred and everything, and, and therefore you, you see uh, differences between the two. So uh, we expect that those two chromosomes will have uh, been separated you know, on separate sort of evolutionary uh, trajectories for the last two N generations, where N is the, the population size. So uh, that's sort of the expectations for for humans that turns into something like a scale of hundreds of thousands of years. And uh, using population genetic approaches, you have more resolution to say something about kind of the more medium, uh, the intermediate and recent subset of that range. So up until the last 50,000 years or so, we have a lot more more power to see what's going on. And once you get back to sort of half a million years ago, you're sort of running out of, of information there, but that, that's sort of the, the time range that we're talking about. And to put that into, put that into some context, you know, half a million years in humans, um, you know, they can compare that to the time since our split with chimpanzees, which was about five to 6 million years ago. Maybe walk us through some of the biological concepts that might be handy in kind of exploring what you do and how you apply machine learning? Sure. So um, I think sort of the, the key concept is that we're dealing with a, a sample of genomes. So uh, you, it's not cost-effective to sequence every genome in the population. So we, we draw some random subset and sample them, and then what we get is a string of letters, ACs, Gs, and Ts, for, for each of the individuals that we've sequenced. And then we're sort of putting that together into this matrix where each row in the matrix is one genome sequence, and each column in the matrix is, is one site along that genome as we're moving along. So the, the human genome, for example, is about 3 billion of these sites, now, not every one of those sites will exhibit variations. There's not always useful information there that we're going to look at, but you know it's a lot of a lot of columns in this matrix. So that that's sort of the the data that we're dealing with. Then there are um, a number of of questions that we're interested in answering with that data. Uh, one area of research that is has been a major focus of mine for the last several years is looking for the signatures of natural selection. So if a new mutation shows up in a population and is harmful, then it will be rapidly removed by natural selection because the individuals bearing that mutation will be less likely to reproduce. And therefore, in that region of the genome, you might expect to see a deficit of diversity. If, on the other hand, a new mutation appears and it's beneficial, then 
it will rapidly increase in frequency because you know, individuals harboring it are more likely to survive, reproduce, and, and leave offspring. So uh, after some number of generations, this, this mutation has increased in frequency to the point where it has replaced the ancestral version of, of that site in the genome. And this will also create a, a sort of distinct characteristic signature of, of selection that we can try to uncover by, by using some of these computational techniques. So, um, yeah, there, there are a whole number of, of, of other interesting areas in population genetics that are doing similar uh, types of, of research where, you know, we're taking this sort of input matrix and trying to infer what is going on there, but um, the the natural selection question has been one that's uh, especially near and dear to my heart over the last few years, at least. Okay. Does that depend on or assume that you are doing a complete uh, sequence of the genome for the samples that you're working with, or are you able to uh, make inferences based on partial sequences as well? You can use partial sequences, and in fact, population genetics, as you know, an empirical discipline, has existed uh, for quite some time, long before we were able to sequence entire genomes, especially of organisms like humans, where we have this large, complex genome. Uh, yeah, there, there's sort of we refer to this as kind of a shift from population genetics to population genomics, because for much of the field's history, we were interested in what's going on at say one gene rather than looking at patterns of variation across an entire genome, but now with increases in, um, you know, the, uh, the speed and cost effectiveness of, of DNA sequencing technologies, we're, we're now able to look, you know, at, at variation at a genome-wide scale. So, yeah, you're not limited to, you know, cases where you have whole genome data, um, but it's getting to the point now where anybody can sequence a genome, you know, anybody who has uh, a lab and modest research funding can, can sequence a fairly large sample of genomes. And when you're doing the type of experiments that you describe where you're you're trying to understand natural selection, is the implication of, of what you describe that you're kind of fundamentally looking at stable sections of the genome as opposed to those sections of the genome that tend to exhibit a lot of variation? Or are you able to, are you looking at those as well for, for different things? Yeah, so in my work, a lot of what I do is I'm sort of trying to walk along the genome and look at how sort of the landscape of variation changes. So you'll have some areas where there's a lot of variation, some where there is not. And uh, we try to make sense of that by sort of segmenting the genome into these different classes or evolutionary models. So this this chunk of the genome looks like it's being shaped by positive selection, which is uh, that scenario where a beneficial mutation has, has recently increased in frequency, or, you know, this region of the genome seems to be experiencing negative or purifying selection where harmful mutations are being removed. And this region of the genome seems to be evolving relatively free from selection. So uh, mutations don't really affect fitness. They're just kind of drifting around randomly o over time. So their frequencies are, are fluctuating, but it has nothing to do with any uh, sort of selective benefit or um, harm caused by the mutation. So, um, yeah, basically I'm trying to figure out 
how much of the genome is, is evolving under one particular model of evolution versus another, and so on. And I'm interested in the landscape as you move across chromosomes. Uh, and so you recently published a paper called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Convolutional Neural Networks in Population Genetic Inference. Um, actually, that came out earlier this month. We're speaking at uh, middle of February. Uh, and that was published in Molecular Biology and Evolution. Can you talk a little bit about that particular paper and what it is trying to convey? Yeah, so this paper is... Um, purely methodological in focus and that we're sort of interested in the different statistical and computational methods that population geneticists have been using over the years. And a, a major focus of my work over the last five years has been to try to incorporate machine learning techniques into population genetic inference. And uh, I should probably start there before I get into this paper because this, this is kind of uh, the culmination of a, a lot of that. I, I was wondering just that, if it was the culmination of a trajectory of things that you've tried in machine learning applied to population genetics, or uh, if you, you know, I also talk to scientists that kind of, you know, just luck into hearing about or finding out about uh, CNNs and deep learning and apply it to their problem and bam, it just works and they kind of start there. Um, so how did that evolve for you? The, the way this evolved for me was around the time that I was finishing up in grad school and uh, getting started with my postdoctoral research, I was becoming increasingly interested in this question of, you know, how much can we learn about natural selection from looking at genomic data? And the, the methods for doing this in population genetics, I, I found were, to me, they seemed a little bit antiquated in that they were often focused on taking your alignments, you know, this matrix that I'm talking about, this this matrix of genome sequences, and sort of boiling it down to a single number. So describing your sequence data by a single statistic, which is descriptive, it tells you something about how much variation is there in this alignment, or what are the frequencies of mutations in this alignment? Are some of them very common within the population? Or are they very rare? Uh, to what extent are two mutations correlated? That is, if individual if an individual has a mutation at site one, how it, does that tell you something about whether he also has a mutation at site two? There are a, a large number of statistics that all sort of capture different, somewhat uh, somewhat redundant, but somewhat complementary patterns of, of variation. And there's kind of this cottage industry of, in population genetics of coming up with a new statistic that you think is the best one for answering the question that you're looking at and sort of describing the theoretical expectations for this statistic under various evolutionary models and, you know, applying this to some data and seeing what you can learn. Now, that's all great, but, you know, you can imagine that if you take this large matrix of genome sequence data and boil it down to a single number, you're probably throwing out a lot of useful information, right? So um, the, the work that I was doing during my postdoc, and there's some other labs that are doing this too, I'm not the only one doing this, but it, it was sort of a small group of population geneticists uh, doing this. And um, we were just trying to incorporate as much of this information as we, as we could into, um, into a method. And one way to do that is to, instead of using one of these statistics, use a large vector of them, throw them all in um, to a vector, and 
try something like a support vector machine or a random forest. So you can use a support vector machine and train it to distinguish between natural selection or no natural selection. Yeah, if I can jump in just to make sure I understand what you're doing, you've got kind of this underlying set of data, which is essentially these alignments. You've got genomes or genome samples that are aligned with one another. And the first thing you did was you took the traditional metrics that have been applied to these alignments and you kind of calculated all of them, put those into a vector and then uh, use machine learning to, for example, identify clusters within the vector space that that you created of these uh, summary statistics. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So the, the idea is, you know, if like rather than arguing over which one of these summary statistics is best, we should see how well we can do if we use all of them at, at once, right? And machine learning is one w- way for you to do that because you know you can use it for you know higher dimensional data. So, and when uh, you say how well you do, what was the specific problem, or what are the types of problems that you're trying to solve? Is it uh-huh. just clustering them uh, together, or are there other problems that you apply this technique to? Yeah, so a lot of uh, population genetic inference is about dis- discriminating between different evolutionary models. So, um, let's go back to this question of can we find whether uh, there has been a recent beneficial mutation that has increased in frequency and you know become what we call fixed or ubiquitous within the population. So um, a little bit of terminology, we call this a selective sweep because this mutation is selected and it sweeps through the population. So this problem of finding selective sweeps is a very difficult one, but it's, it's one that's um, sort of central to pop gen research because we're interested in... Um, how much recent adaptation, uh, you know, particular species might be having, whether it's humans or or, or anything else, uh, you know, how are we responding to the selective environment that we're in? So you can use this information to tell you something about how much adaptation is there, which parts of the genome are responsible for this adaptation, but it all boils down to this model selection thing. Can I discriminate between regions of the genome that are experiencing a sweep and those that are not? So um, the the way that I, that I have gone about this model selection is by training a classifier to to do it. Is the data just the sequences? At least at this point in in your application of machine learning, is it just the sequences, or is it the sequences, for example, and the? Um, I guess I'm I'm curious about if there's some element of time that's captured like the, you know, birth or death or eight, you know, the timestamp of the sequence or something like that. And you're looking at these sequences over a long period of time. Is it like a time series thing or are you able to infer these sweeps just by looking at a T equals zero set of samples and the, the way that they're distributed? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, generally we do, you know, think about the scenario where you you only have sampling from one time point. So, um, you know, you're you've randomly sampled from some population, you know, last year, and you have this this data set, and you're trying to use it to to make these inferences about, um, you know, recent evolutionary history. And um, a large reason for that, I mean, there are two reasons for that. One is the the practical cost of accumulating sequence data, and 
that cost has gone down. I'll come back to that in a second. And the other is that if you want to do this sort of time series thing, you need to uh, say you want to sample every generation. Well, if you're doing that in humans, then you know each generation you know might be 25, 30 years or so. So to sort of capture any interesting patterns there, you have to be accumulating data over a, a long period of time. Now, um, some organisms have much more rapid generation times. I also work uh, on fruit flies and mosquitoes and you know these things rather than having one generation every few dozen years, they'll have a, you know a dozen or so generations in one year. So over the course of a few years, you can accumulate a large number of generations and create time series data. And this is something that's becoming feasible now with um, improvements in sequencing technology. So I'd say that that's kind of a small subset of the kind of landscape of PopGen research right now, but you're going to be seeing that changing very rapidly, I think. So, so you'll see a lot of this time series analysis, but right now it's mostly just looking at this one snapshot. So at, at this stage where you're creating a classifier, you've got this data, as we discussed, it tends to be from a single period of time or a period of time, I'm assuming that where you can kind of, they're close enough that you can kind of ignore time as a big factor. And you've collected this data. Can you talk a little bit about the data collection process? So uh, in this is where it gets a little bit tricky because in sort of more traditional applications of machine learning, you want to collect training data. And uh, here we can't do that. You know, we collect data that we can apply something to, right? We can sequence a bunch of human genomes that we want to run our classifier on. But how do we get a data set where we know what the ground truth is? Right. And, uh, you know, that can be tricky in evolutionary biology because, you know, while we are doing our best to make evolutionary inferences, it's difficult to nail down with absolute certainty, right? Um, what is the evolutionary history of, you know, this species, this population, or this gene? So um, what we do is we, uh, we simulate. So um, there are uh, these nice idealized models of, of evolution that allow you to, to simulate an evolving population and sequences within this population. So you can produce synthetic data that one can then use to, to train a classifier. So then the, the tricky part is, you know, on how do we simulate this thing? Um, how do we parameterize these simulations? And, um, you know, you have to be careful to sort of try to make these simulations match your data as best as you can. But if you knew exactly how your data, you know, how your organism of interest was evolving, then you wouldn't be needing to do the research anyway, right? Because you already know everything. So um, it's it's kind of analogous to doing some sort of Bayesian inference where you've got, you know, these priors. And, um, you know, here we're simulating under those priors to, to, to generate training data. And you have to examine uh, what is the the robustness of this classifier to uh, model misspecification? What if mm -hmm. I'm wrong about the, you know, the the parameters of the simulation? What if I, you know, I thought the population size of this organism was one million, but actually it's half a million? How does that affect the the accuracy of the of my downstream analysis? So you have to take all these things into account. Is there some like? prototypical human genome that you use as the starting place for your simulation or uh, or some kind of standard human? Yeah. Uh, how does that work? 
Yeah, so, um, yeah, there is. That, that's a great question. So um, we typically refer to these as reference genomes. So for the, the way that um, sequencing started out, like this approach, uh, was that you would go and create one very high-quality genome sequence for your species. Uh, so, the, you know, we did this in humans, and it took over a decade and a billion dollars to, to sequence the first human genome, which we call the reference genome, but you know, it's this very high quality sequence. And uh, you can use that by using these uh, cheap and fast DNA sequencing technologies, which produce a bunch of very tiny chunks of, of DNA sequence that you then search against that reference genome. So that's, this, um, that's how you create these alignments that I was referring to by doing sequence searches and figuring out, okay, this tiny little chunk here, that goes to this part on chromosome one. I can figure that out by searching it against the reference genome. So there are sort of these two different tiers of, of genome sequences. There are these very high quality reference genomes, and then um, there are these genomes produced from these, these rapid sequencing technologies that are mapped against the reference genome in order to, to reveal variation because you take this tiny chunk from this individual that you've sequenced, you map it to the reference, and you see, oh, okay, um, this little chunk or read, we call it, it's identical to this portion of the reference genome except for this one difference. And if you accumulate enough evidence for those differences, then you know, okay, that is a mutation that's present in my population. And then you referenced needing to make sure you get the population size right. Yeah, in the case of humans, for example, uh, where does the complexity come in there? And like, is it correct relative to this reference genome and uh, the specifics of the population you're sampling? Or you know, what kind of resolution do you need there? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. And I, this is still a very open area of research. Um, so the you know, obviously, you can go get the census population size of, of humans today, uh, or a pretty good approximation of it, but that has not been the size of our population over much of our history. There's been dramatic changes, of course, growth most recently, but in many populations, there were contractions, especially with uh, those populations that migrated out of Africa. Um, that migration was associated with a, a large population bottleneck. So the, the population size history in humans is, it's messy, it's non-monotonic, and it concludes with this very rapid super exponential explosion that's been going on for the last few hundred years now. So um, to what extent can we accurately um, model these population size changes? Um, that's, that's another area of, of research that actually we touch upon a little bit in in the the CNN paper that that we'll be talking about. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question uh, well no, I, enough. <laughs> I think, no, I think you did. I think I th my my takeaway was it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then I, I think I did a good job. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're doing this simulation. You're applying uh, kind of Bayesian types of methods. You're trying to apply probability distributions at different points in the simulation process. I guess the question is, are you doing that per read or SNP or something like that? Or are you doing that on a, a sequence level? Like, do you, are we at the point where we're modeling variability uh, and distributions on a kind of subsequence level? Or is it kind of a, 
a more coarse grained model today? Yeah, so for for the most part, we're interested in, in sort of zooming in and looking at relatively small regions of the genome. So that's kind of what we're simulating, um, yeah, to sort of uh, come up with expectations for uh, patterns of variation within, uh, you know, a, say a size of the genome that's spanning, um, you know, a few dozen genes, something like that, or less sometimes, something on the order of a single gene. So, uh yeah, typically we're looking at smaller regions, but for some questions, especially this question of trying to infer uh, demographic changes like population size changes, uh, we want to be looking at patterns of variation across the whole genome because if there's a population crash, that that affects the amount of genetic variation across the entire genome. So we want to use as much of we want to use as much of that data as possible. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, yeah, another development in our field in, in recent years is it's become feasible to simulate larger and larger genomes. So um, we can sort of capture the expected dynamics genome-wide, not just, you know, at a gene or a few genes. So the, the, we do the whole gamut, I guess. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so this approach to training a classifier based on the sequences and simulated results to provide your ground truth was one of your first steps in the direction of applying machine learning to pop gen you know the was the cnn the next step or did you have a few more steps to get there yeah so i i played around with this approach on a, i guess a few different problems you know I, I was mostly interested in this natural selection question but i branched out to a few different areas um you know, I kind of got a little bit caught up in trying to push along a, a cultural change in, in our field in population genetics. I was trying to make the point to to people that that these machine learning methods are are not scary. We should consider trying to use them for you know every question where it is appropriate and and see how well they compare to our our more traditional methods. So, an, another question that I was looking into was uh, this question of finding gene flow. So this is um, the scenario where you have two different populations. They diverged some time ago, uh, you know, say African and non-African humans. You know, they, they split some time ago when non-Africans migrated um, out of the African continent and, you know, colonized Eurasia. And uh, we want to know after that split, did uh, these populations come back into contact at a certain time point and exchange genetic material, and if so, can we find like the genomic regions where there has been this gene flow? So, um, yeah, probably the African non-African question isn't um, the best example of this because the the genetic exchanges um, across the entire genome uh, in, in cases where there has been the secondary contact, like African Americans, for example, have uh, um, European ancestry. Uh, across the basically entire genome, as well as African ancestry. Uh, a better example is probably Neanderthals. So um, you may have heard, it's been reported in, um, in the news, that uh, we now know that Neanderthals um, have donated genetic material to uh, Eurasian, you know, Asians and, and Europeans, uh, humans. So... Um, a, a typical European individual 
has maybe two to four percent of their DNA tracing its ancestry back to to Neanderthals. So um, after the split between um, you know the the ancestral population that gave rise to modern humans and also uh, Neanderthals, these two species uh, eventually found themselves in the same location and there was interbreeding there and we can sort of see the genetic remnants of that in certain point certain parts of the human genome so um, i got into this this question of detecting regions where there has been um, regions of the genome where there has been uh, the flow of genetic material from one population into another and um of course it, here there have been a, a large number of statistical approaches devised over the years uh, to detect these patterns. Um, and I took the same approach of, you know, creating a, a machine learning uh, a classifier that uh, uses a vector of these statistics to discriminate between these different models of, so here are three models where there is no gene flow between these two populations or um, within this genomic window, there's gene flow from population one to population two and vice versa. And of course, it works much better than any method that is using just one statistic because you're throwing out all that information. So if you incorporate as much information as you can into the feature vector, you um, you produce more accurate inferences. So I was going around talking that, talking about that work, um, going to conferences, you know, trying to um, sell this stuff to people. Say like, you know, um, this machine learning stuff works. We should, you know, here's the evidence. Um, and somebody in the audience of that talk um, was interested and um, went and looked at my code and thought, well, what happens if I get rid of this part that calculates all the statistics and just replace it with a convolutional neural network? Mm -hmm. So, you know, let let a neural net come up with its own statistics and see how well it can answer this question. And um, this person was Lex Flagel, who was the first author on um, that paper published in MBE. And Lex sent me an email one day, and um, yeah, the day I opened up this email was the the most exciting day of my professional life. He he opened this up and was like, "Hey, I got this result. I was playing around with the convolutional neural net, and thought I'd see how it did. And here are the results. Is is this good? So I I pull up my data and I'm comparing, and I'm like, "Huh, this is better than mine." So <laughs> yeah, so. Um, there had been a few um, conversations I'd had in the, the years leading up to this about, you know, this idea of, you know, maybe using deep learning or some some approach that's able to act directly on the alignment um, rather than pre-digesting it into a bunch of features or summary statistics. But I, I never had a chance to get around to it. And, you know, then suddenly there on my screen was the evidence that not only can you do this, but it works really well, better than um, better than what I was trying at the time. So um, we knew right away, or um, I knew right away, that we had to try this out on a bunch of different problems in population genetics to see if this um, approach would work in, in general. And uh, that was the work that led to the, the MBE paper. In the paper, you're, you, you're doing just that. You're trying CNNs out uh, on a bunch of these different problems. Does each of these problems represent one of the statistics that you were... Uh, kind of aggregating together in your previous work? Or are the problems kind of at a higher level and the statistics, you know, informed approaches to the problems? 
Yeah, so these problems have been major areas of research in PopGen for, for quite some time. So um, the, the different problems we, we touch on in the paper are this problem of finding selective sweeps, uh, this problem of finding gene flow. We try to infer population size changes, and, uh, and the other is inferring the, the rate of recombination. So recombination is when, um, during meiosis, uh, your two different chromosome copies exchange genetic material with one another. So it sort of breaks up the association uh, between mutations all along a chromosome. So, uh, you know, you would think that if you're looking at, say, chromosome one in the human genome, like if you take one of your copies of chromosome one as you're going back in time, that whole chromosome should have the same evolutionary history you know, as you trace it back through ancestor to ancestor, but recombination breaks that up. Um, different chunks of the chromosome um, have different ancestors. And um, it's a, a longstanding problem in, in population genetics, um, try, trying to infer how much of this recombination happens in different parts of the genome. So can you infer the recombination rate landscape across the genome? And you can try to do this using population genetic data. So uh, a bunch of methods exist for doing that. All, all of these problems have um, have gotten a lot of attention from researchers over the years. So there's not just one statistic for, for each of them. There, there are dozens for many of them. So um, we were comparing our approach of just throwing it all into a CNN and then seeing what answer comes out to um, many of these statistics that have been used or, or vectors of those statistics. Um, you know, like the approach I had been using up to that point of throwing them all into a classifier and using something like a random forest. Can you talk a little bit about the approach to making your data fit well within the paradigm of CNNs? Did you need to do anything special there? Uh, yeah, you certainly do. And, um, because we wanted this to sort of be a proof of principle, we were focusing on simulated data in this paper just to show that this can work in principle and it can work better than some of the best methods that we that we have at our disposal right now. Um, we didn't want to get too deep into the rabbit hole of, of all the things that you have to do um, when you're working with real data that, that can be messy. Um, so... Yeah, one problem with so, so we kind of skipped a lot of this stuff, um, or just pointed out that these are issues that that won't have to deal with. But I think that the um, the deep learning approach is probably better suited for dealing with a lot of these problems than some of the more traditional approaches. Because and so, what are some of those problems? Yeah, so um, a common problem is that uh, there can be piece parts of the genome where you just don't have a lot of information where, you know, you've mapped these reads, but you're not exactly sure where they go or the reads are of low quality. So you're not exactly sure what nucleotide is there, what the base is. So um, there's low confidence data or missing data and you have to sort of mask these out. So dealing with this, I think is actually pretty straightforward in this machine learning framework. You, um, take a look at your actual data and see like sort of what's the distribution of missing data along my genome and then just adjust your simulations accordingly. Uh, you know, synthetically mask some portion of, of your training data and your simulated test data and, um, and then train. It's a lot more easy to do this when your input is, you know, just the sequence matrix rather than 
some statistic that has been calculated a, across the matrix, and it, it might not be designed to deal with um, with missing data. You know, we don't really have to deal with that. We just have to supply training data that we think kind of matches what the the input data look like. You know, when we think of CNNs, we we most frequently think of image data that has kind of the this. Uh, you know, often square or two-dimensional or two three-dimensional with channels kind of structure. How did your sequence data map to that? Yeah, so it um, we were using two-dimensional data where each each row in your matrix is a genome sequence and each column is one site. Um, yeah, the the shape of this matrix is different from what you might find in a you know like a typical image or something like, uh, you know, the ImageNet database, because um, you might have something like 50 rows, you know, 50 is a fairly small number of pixels, but you may have thousands of columns, you know, maybe 10,000. So, um, you know, you get these very oblong matrices that you're, that you're shoving in there. So, um, yeah, we're actually using primarily 1D convolutions within um within the paper, kind of treating these more as, as time series data than, than as image data. And um, myself, I've also played around with applying different flavors of, of RNNs, and I, I know some other researchers that are, that are doing that as well now. Um, so they don't look exactly, you know, in terms of their shape, like a typical image that you'd be throwing a, a CNN at. This is kind of a, a a nit, I guess. But did you? I'm curious if you did like a one-hot encoding on your proteins, your the your gene, individual genes. The way that we encode the sequence data is basically zeros and ones. In a lot of population genetics, we are only concerning ourselves with what we call biallelic sites, those sites where there are two different variants. So you know, maybe I have an A, and you know, you have a G at this site. Um, you know, we'll just think of those two different alleles as, as zero and one. So just a, a matrix of zeros and ones. And, um, you know, if, if we are trying to use that information to find selective sweeps, then we'll have uh, different classes. Um, you know, uh, there are a few different types of selective sweeps. Um, so, you know, say zero for one particular type of sweep, one for another, and, you know, two for a neutrally evolving region of the genome. Those are our class labels. And, you know, we'll make a, a one-hot encoded vector of... Of, of those classes. But yeah, the input matrix is just uh, a 2D matrix of zeros and ones. Okay. For now. But I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, other different ways of encoding that, that one uh, could try out here. And I think it's important to stress here, and I'm sure a lot of listeners uh, of your podcast will, will gather that um, we are very far behind the machine learning field, the deep learning field, um, when it comes to population genetics, we are, you know, just sort of trying things out right now, and we're trying out neural nets that, um, you know, are at least five years or more behind the the state of the art. Uh, so there's a lot of catching up to do, and a lot of experimentation with different network architectures, different uh, input encodings, and and things like that that we have to try out. So can you give us a summary of the results you saw for these four different uh, types of problems? Yeah, yeah. So that's easy. Basically. Um, Deep learning, if, if trained carefully, it can um, it can at least match the uh, current state of the art methods 
if not handily outperform them for for most of the problems that we've looked at. So uh, the, the one case where I think there's a lot more work to be done that we just sort of um, gave a simple first uh, attempt at was the, this question of trying to infer population size histories. You know, it's the the method we came up with worked fairly well there, but we want to be able to scale up to genome scale data and um, you know a simple CNN approach where you have uh, an image that encompasses an entire genome of, of billions of base pairs uh, is at least beyond our capabilities at the moment computationally, and it's probably not the appropriate method for that anyway. Um, uh, something like a recurrent neural net of, of some kind might be more appropriate. Um, but for you know these questions of finding gene flow, finding selective sweeps, inferring recombination rates, um, the results were pretty stunningly uh, amazing. And uh, you know that's uh, that's why we gave it the title, um, you know, in reference to the you know the popular unreasonable effectiveness meme mm-hmm. in in statistics. Um, yeah, I mean, we were certainly blown away by how well this this stuff worked, and um, yeah, uh, we wanted to share that enthusiasm with the field and get people to to consider these types of methods in the future for for their own work. Awesome, awesome. And so, where do you go from here? Yeah, so um, I have started my lab here at, at UNC uh, almost a year ago, and we're continuing some some work along these lines. So I have a postdoc right now who's very interested in, in trying to um, to dive deeper into this question of, of population size changes and um, trying out a variety of methods, including deep learning methods, to to answer these and other demographic questions. So, um, yeah, the deep learning is definitely still a part of it. I, I have another postdoc who is um, uh, working on phylogenomic questions. So um, here, you know, phylogenomics is a um, different field of evolutionary biology where you're, you're looking at sequences from different species rather than uh, sequences within one population, within one species, and try to make inferences like just inferring the species tree that, that you know, connects them. So figuring out the relationship among among species, um, you know, uh, trying to fill out the tree of life. And, and he's also trying out deep learning methods there. Yeah. I, it's not my plan to have a lab that's entirely based on machine learning and deep learning, but, um, when, uh, when you've had some success using these methods and, um, you know, they, they've got the cool buzzwords, so it, it, it attracts talent. And, you know, I have people, the people who want to join are interested in doing deep learning. So I guess that's what I'm going to do, right? <laughs> you're, you're, you're limited by who you can recruit. So, um, but no, we're enjoying it a lot, um, sort of trying to push the envelope to see um, how much we can learn by, by applying these these methods to genomic data. Yeah, there's there's other stuff that I am interested in doing that it's not at all related to to machine learning, but um, yeah, that's probably a topic for a different conversation. <laughs> well, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us about your work. It's really exciting to see how uh, deep learning and machine learning in general is applied to these types of problems in population genetics. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sam. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing how this uh, this stuff evolves over the next few years. Because um, you know, I want to be clear, there are some other labs working on this uh, as well, and um, I want to see where they where they take it. Thank you. Thanks.
All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.